0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Terence Glassman is an architect. I invited him to join us because in my conversations with him, it became so evident and so obvious and so intriguing how there is a definite psychology to our living spaces, what makes us comfortable, where we function, where we feel safe, and how we are connected to our environment. He was also involved in the interior design work of the International Space Station. We have been negligent in not pursuing this aspect of our lives, and so my invitation to him was sent out, and he very kindly agreed. Mr. Glassman, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I've heard it said that architecture is the connective tissue between our different worlds. How does an architect think about a project? How does he blend the functional aspects of a building, like a library or a home, with the fact that people have to live there and have to emotionally engage with their environment? Tell us a little bit about this process.
1: My introduction to it as a young student was profound in that I met Richard Neutra, a Viennese architect living and practicing in Los Angeles, and had been a fr- with Sigmund Freud. Neutra was very much tuned into what he called the therapeutic aspects of the environment and talked about a principle we called biorealism, which is very relevant today. And his point was that we are sensory animals who interact with our environment, our senses have evolved over millions of years. And there are certain types of things that make us comfortable or uncomfortable as a result of our evolutionary process. And so... He would do things to create a link between the natural environment and the man-made environment. In cases where even in a very small space, you had a direct connection to an outdoor. Often it was a, a green area, garden area area. And he said, because our eyes evolve in a green environment, it doesn't just make us feel comfortable, but it is biologically suited to the way we've evolved. If we look at the fact that our technologies that we have today are just a little more than 100 years old when we look at our electrical systems and all, yet our biology has evolved over millions of years. And so we need to form that understanding, that link between our own biological evolution. Uh, Rene DuBose wrote, Man adapting and then a sequel, man over adapting, in which he talks about our ability to adapt to environments. Sometimes we can adapt to things which aren't very healthy or very nurturing. So our challenge in architecture, one of the challenges is to create a healthy, nurturing environment for human growth and development. I approach this in a synergistic way. Synergy was a term that was formulated by Buckminster Fuller. And Bucky Fuller, who was described as the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century, was concerned with putting what we do as human beings and an architects in a larger context. That is, the context of the fact that we live on a spaceship, and this spaceship happens to be called Earth. And he said that we survived on this planet for millions of years without even knowing the fact that we were on this spaceship, and it was only after the Earth had been circumvented by the earlier explorers that we discovered that it was a closed system. And what was profound about that is that all of the resources of the planet are finite, that we don't have infinite things out there that we can find as the early explorers thought. As a result, we have to use the resources that we have on board to serve all humanity. As Gandhi said, there's enough for everyone's need there is not enough for everyone's greed. What Bucky did was to say instead of looking at architecture and design in terms of the That Mies Van Der Rohe made popular during the modern period of architecture, which is less is more than aesthetic value, but Mr. Fuller turned it around and he said, do more with less. And his point was by using our resources in the most efficient way economically, we have enough to go around. We have enough serve all humanity, and his objective was to make the world work for all humanity and to eliminate the kinds of conflicts that we have in the world where people live in a poverty consciousness, thinking there isn't enough to go around, and it's survival of the fittest, and so we have to compete to survive. What I like about Jonas Salk's work is Jonas Salk took that notion of survival of the fittest and turned it around and said, it's Survival today of that which fits best. So he was looking at the fact that we interact with our environment. And one of the most dangerous things in human evolution is over specialization. he found that when he studied all the species which had become extinct. One common denominator was over-specialization, because when you become limited in your adaptation to a very specific kind of environment, when things change, you lose your general adaptability. And as Bucky said, the only constant in the universe is change. The important thing, when we look at that in terms of architecture and in terms of all of our professions, there is a tendency... Toward specialization, which is a situation where we develop these what Eric Erickson defined as professional fraternity. These fraternities have their own language and their own way of communicating. I did my graduate work at Harvard and MIT, and when I went to Harvard in 1971, I was very interested in learning more about the human condition. I had done my undergraduate work at Berkeley. I had at Berkeley, and I later talked at the University of Colorado and I found that I, as an architect, I knew how to design, but I didn't know what to design.
0: That's very interesting. I, I think that's an incredible insight.
1: For me, it meant defining what constitutes a healthy, nurturing environment for human growth and development. In architecture, we took courses in psychology and sociology, things like this, that were available to universities. But I found that those courses were about the discipline and not about human beings. That is, that you could learn about the process and discipline of psychology, but that didn't necessarily help me as an architect to begin to formulate the criteria to evaluate what constitutes a healthy environment. So I began working with people at the university and teaching. I began doing cross-disciplinary projects where I would bring in people from different disciplines to work in the architecture program. And when I went to Harvard in 71, I naively thought that, well, I could go and talk to some of these experts in the behavioral sciences and find out what they knew which was applicable to what would be useful to me as an architect. I went to work with Jerome Bruner, Burton White, Eric Erickson, B.F. Skinner. What I discovered my surprise was that none of them had ever thought about the environmental implications of their developmental theories. For me to be able to begin to converse with them and interact, I had to go into their discipline. I had to learn the principles and the language of that discipline in order to be able to formulate a hypothesis that I could then go back and say, okay, based on this concept, this is how I would interpret it in terms of physical planning and design of the environment. What has inspired me from the beginning is Winston Churchill. Churchill once said, we shape our environment, and thereafter, our environment shapes us. And that was very profound. And so I felt like my design skill wasn't enough. I needed to be able to see, okay, by what criteria can I evaluate what I'm doing? In architecture, we have the elements that we're working with, the practical elements, that dealing with structural systems and mechanical systems, and there's the budget and the technology and all these various things we're working with, and those are all measurable. But the other aspect, the human aspect, is less measurable. Ironically, in computing a structural system, use terms like stress and strain, and you can actually measure in a wooden beam the amount of stress that that beam can take before it will begin to fail, which is when it reaches the strain point. We can test and we can calculate that. But we don't have that same thing for human beings. And the issue became one of, well, how can we begin to identify and codify criteria for creating environments which would be healthy and nurturing? I could see that the way we had been creating our environment for the past hundred years was not healthy if we look at all of the industries of congestion, of pollution, of crime, of mental illness. All of these are alerts to the fact that there are things that we're not doing that are creating some of these kinds of psychological, social, cultural problems leading to that.
0: One of the things that I remember you showing me was a street that had trees planted on it, outdoor eateries. There were people walking and talking. It was warm, contrasted to a wall. I'll never forget this, a massive wall that was just all concrete and it was cold and there was nothing there. I I, I looked at it and said, yes, I've experienced both and you're absolutely correct.
1: That is a project that I did with four of my students in Santa Monica, California, called the Third Street Promenade. Like many of our malls that were created back in the 60s, the shopping mall became an economic magnet where people would come and shopping malls became like islands surrounded by a sea of cars. It was just the antithesis of the old Main Street notion, where you could walk down the street and see friends and interact and see what was going on in the community. The shopping mall became an isolated kind of experience. In an effort to make a transition from that, in the 60s, some of the cities, including Santa Monica, took a section of their downtown and just closed the streets off in Santa Monica's six-block area. Then they put in a few potted trees and some benches, and they called that a pedestrian mall. To look at it, it was like a dead space. It was a no-man's land. You were taking an 80-foot-wide street and merely closing it off and expecting that it was going to work. What we did there to transform that into the Third Street Promenade, which has become the second most popular attraction in Los Angeles next to Disneyland. What we did was to create a urban outdoor streetscape, which is multicultural and multigenerational. It's a place where people can come and experience being part of a community. It came to me after I had been traveling in Europe, And I found that virtually every city you went to, there was a plaza, there was a placa, there was a town square. There were places where you could experience a sense of being part of a community. But our country... We have few of those kinds of places, and part of it is because of the wealth, where people living in suburbs have their own outdoor space. In Europe, what you find is the outdoor space is communal, and people are living in areas where they don't have their own private outdoor space, so the common space becomes something that people all share, and it fosters a sense of community. What we did was to actually create an interactive experience for people We went in and took what was the old mall area, which was just a vacant area, six blocks long, and we set up an exhibit showing what some of the issues were that we were dealing with and then inviting people to contribute their ideas. And we made it a very interactive process where people could come in, learn about it, express their ideas. And then we put all that together in a master plan report for the city. And that was transformed into what is the Third Street Promenade today. It does have this mixed-use kind of aspect. There's a wonderful book written by Jane Jacobs in the 60s called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, where she points out that the communities that are safe communities are places where there are eyes on the street. This goes to some of the older areas where you had commercial on the first floor, shops and things like that. And then on the floors above that, they'd be maybe three or four story buildings. You had people living in those apartments overlooking the street. The children then would be playing out in the street. And there was a sense of community and people knew who belonged and who didn't belong. Herbert Gans. Wrote study of this for the north end of Boston when Boston was subjected to urban renewal in the 1960s and they tore down this whole area of Boston and replaced it with some high-rise buildings that are right across the street from Mass General Hospital in downtown Boston. What they find is that in these high-rise buildings where you have people detached from the ground plane, that the ground belongs to everybody, but in essence, it belongs to nobody. Nobody feels that it's of their living space. And there was a classic problem in New York City around Central Park where there was a crime being committed. A woman was being attacked. Many, many people living around it were aware of this, heard the noise and saw something going on. Nobody did anything about it. What they found was because the fact that something is a common space and belongs to everybody, once you get more than three floors above the ground, you're detached from that connection to the ground. Oscar Newman wrote a very important book called Defensible Space. And what he did was he took two housing developments that were right across the street from each other that had the same number of people living on the same acreage. One was a high-rise, low-density, and one was a low-rise, high-density. In the high-rise, you had more open space, more ground space. In the lower-rise, you had units that were not more than three stories above the ground, but you had less common open area. They found a profound difference that the low-rise, high-density in terms of the crime report was much safer than people who were living in high-rise, low-density. And it had to do with this detachment from the ground. So there are many of these kinds of factors which as architects, we have to deal with.
0: Fascinating. This is fascinating.
1: One of my concerns today is that in talking about architecture and the definition of architecture, and it was interesting to me because in an earlier discussion you and I had, and you asked me a question about the origin of the word architect and thinking of it in terms of the arch and the technology, which was a, logical kind of interpretation, I had to look it up myself. In looking it up, I found that architect derives from the Latin architectus, which derives from the Greek archi, which means chief, and pectin would mean builder. Therefore, architect, the original form, was about being a chief builder. We have a tradition in the history of architecture where we do have what we call the master architect or master builder. Frank Lloyd Wright was a magnificent practitioner of that and is certainly well known and did some brilliant work. And Frank Lloyd Wright believed in the individualist, the rugged individualist. Well, at the same time, the most famous contemporary school of architecture, which was in Germany, was called the Bauhaus. And the Bauhaus was formed by Walter Gropius, an architect, and brought together some of the most brilliant architect planners and craftsmen in Europe and created a program whereby students had to learn about all of the arts and not just about architecture. After Hitler, Gropius left Germany and came to the United States and became the head of the architecture program at Harvard and started a program called the Architects Collaborative. He and Frank Lloyd Wright were debating the subject. Frank Lloyd Wright was arguing about individual and the vision of the individual. Gropius was talking about the idea of collaboration and all of that. Frank Lloyd Wright said, Gropius, but Walter, if you wanted to make a baby, you wouldn't consult your neighbor, would you? And Gropius' response was, well, if my neighbor was a woman, I might. The point being that we live at a time where collaboration is essential. One of the high points of architecture in the Renaissance was a time in which it was possible for the architect to have a diverse knowledge of all of these different fields. One of the distinctions between science and architecture is that science is largely based on taking things apart to try to understand. Architecture has to deal with Synthesis with how we put things together and architecture is a synthesis of everything. It's one of the things I find most interesting because it deals with human behavior and it deals with the environmental factors and it deals with economics and it deals with history and all of these things. When Bucky was talking about synergy, he defined synergy as the performance of a system as indetermined by the performance of the individual parts. It is a counterpart to Gestalt in psychology, the fact that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, most people have experienced building. Many people have not experienced architecture. Architecture cannot be represented. It can only be experienced. Architecture is an experiential thing where we are multi-sensory beings, and we don't just experience it through what we see. First time I was in St. Peter's for a mass, I had studied it in architectural history, but being there during the high mass, hearing the choir and the acoustics of the space was profound. The acoustical space was equally or more important than the visual space. What I'm trying to get to is the idea that all architecture is dealing with all of our sensory modalities, not just the visual. Often the spaces that people find that seem to be cold are spaces which might be designed from a visual standpoint, but might lack many of the other sensory stimulus. In the 1960s, again, was when the architectural journal started to become popular. The architectural journals have a tendency to print and promote what's different, what's unusual. That isn't necessarily what's good. For an architect who wants to get their work published, they have to think about how am I going to attract a publisher who's going to want to photograph and show that. So there's a aspect of that which is counterproductive. Mies van der Rohe once said, I don't want to be interesting, I want to be good. And it was to say that what's interesting is only what's temporarily interesting. We have today a lot of what is being produced, which is described as architecture, which I regard as ego texture, and a lot of it is what I refer to as. It becomes corporate icons where we can see examples of this, of buildings that stand out almost like billboards to get attention for the building and the architect, but lack many of the aspects of what constitutes a nurturing environment or something that is appropriate to the cultural values, social, and the aspects of our society.
0: Again, I find this incredibly interesting, but we're going to have to end from a time perspective. I want you back. I want to talk about where all these wonderful ideas are going, what the future of architecture is. And as I'm listening to you and having done a little preparation, it's how little I really know about the architecture process and how much I need to know. Architecture is a combination of being a practitioner and a poet. What a fascinating, fascinating walk you've taken us on. And Terrence Glassman is an architect. Mr. Glassman, thank you so much. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. And I look forward to having future conversations about this because architecture is something that affects all of us. We're all affected by our environment. As Churchill said, we shape our environment and thereafter our environment shapes us.